is this going to be the general death of physical media completely? Because there's some nostalgia there, but I don't think there's nostalgia with a DVD the way there is with vinyl. Let me put it this way. I think there will be always a collector's element to this. You know, my daughter's 19 years old and she has a wall of Blu-rays and she thinks it's the coolest thing in the world to own that media. Um, if any of you guys are interested, I know somebody who owns a giant collection of laser discs, ooh. Uh, mostly porn, by the way. Less but, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ooh, a laser disc. The cheese playing something on a laser disc. Everything is better on laser disc. Whatever happened to the laser disc, laser disc? On this episode of Resi Week, we talk death to Blu-ray, bumper lanes, and change orders. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. This is Resi Week, episode 402, Ring the Bell. Welcome to this episode of Resi Week. This is your weekly roundup of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by three of my good friends. First, we have Mr. Michael Short. He's the Senior Director of Marketing residential for Crestron. How are you doing, Michael? Hey, fantastic. Thanks for having me on again. Great to see you. Hey, thanks for staying up late again. No problem. <laughs> One of these days we'll do it when you're stateside to make it a little easier for you. Or you could just do it early in the day, you know? Why don't we do like 9 a.m. my time? No, I'm not adjusting my schedule for you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I kid. If you asked, Mitchell would do it for us. All right. Uh, then we have Dave Chance. He's the president of Cogent 360. How are you, Dave? Hey there. Great to be here. Glad to have you. And last but certainly not least, we have Mr. Jason Knott. He is an evangelist over at DTools. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, gentlemen, we're going to kick this off with a story that comes to us from CE Pro. Best Buy is going to end DVD and Blu-ray sales next year. Uh they are uh, doing this, obviously, because streaming has taken over, so they're going to pull them out of their stores. Michael, let me start with you. Is this just a is this just a sign of the times? I remember when they took CDs out, and then they occasionally had some vinyl, and then that mostly disappeared. Now DVDs and Blu-rays are leaving, which I'm going to make the general assumption that means that like Target and maybe Walmart. Uh, in North America will be the only retailer still selling that. Is this, is this just what happens? I think it is, you know, we've all seen the decline of, of this. This has been happening for, for years, you know, now streaming TVs, uh, smart TVs are, are prevalent and it is just a sign of the times. And it's not just because of our interest in physically purchasing, um, DVDs is is disappearing is because everything from streaming services um, to the industry is moving away from from physical media. And I think that this is unfortunately just a sign of the times, those 150, 200 DVDs in your wall at home, Matt, you know, that's you're going to have to keep them. They're in a binder. Thank you very much. OK, OK. We put them in cases. <laughs> But yeah, it is totally sign of the times, and everyone is shifting from the major, um, the major, but the film industry from the major film industry players, and all moving away from it as well. So I think, unfortunately, it is the end. I invested heavily in the, in the rubber made rubber bins that hold all my CDs and DVDs that are sitting comfortably in the basement right now. See, I I don't care about the jackets. 
other than a couple of CDs. So I, I, I just ditch the jackets and throw everything into the, in the uh -huh. past, the case logic binders. Dave, we saw a huge resurgence the last couple of years with vinyl, which led to vinyl stores popping up. Um, every town seems to have at least one. Do you think there's a chance that down the road we'll get back to a Blu-ray, you know, 4K, Ultra, HD, whatever you want to call it, disc store coming back? It's a good question. I'd be curious, how many people, of, of the people buying albums, what percentage is it purely for the audio quality versus kind of, you know, folks more in my generation who remember the experience of buying the album and opening it up and reading the liner notes and all that whole experience and having that still tangible in your home. Yeah, I think of I think of DVDs and Blu-rays and all that, where it's not just watching the movie, perhaps in a, in a, in a better format like Blu-ray, but also all the cool stuff that you get with it. And will we get the same thing through a streaming service, like all the things like the Easter eggs and, you know, all the cool stuff mm -hmm. that you can find, the directors, you know, interviews and all of that, um, particularly on the favorite movies. I really enjoy that, having that extra stuff from movies I really enjoy. Um, so, I mean, certainly I can't see it being for the quality of the video signal, but maybe, you know, potentially for nostalgic reasons. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting idea. Jason, I, I, I saw an interview a couple of years, a while ago, we'll say, um, with um, Ben Affleck. And he's talking about why essentially movies, for lack of a better term, suck these days. And a lot of it was because they just, they're in the theaters for a little bit or they're direct to streaming. And that life cycle is incredibly short. And one of the things he touched on was the fact that we used to have, you know, a year of DVD sales that would be as big as the theatrical release. And people went out to buy those DVDs because to Dave's point, they had liner notes. They had my personal favorite commentaries through the entire movie with the directors and the stars or the filmmakers or the lighting guys. Cause I'm a geek. Stop looking at me like that, Michael. And that, that, that really pushed the sales of DVDs. Is this going to be the general de death of really physical media completely because, to Dave's point, there's some nostalgia there, but I don't think there's nostalgia with a DVD the way there is with vinyl. Let me put it this way. I think there will be always a collector's element to this. You know, my daughter's 19 years old and she has a wall of Blu-rays and she thinks it's the coolest thing in the world to own that media. Um, if any of you guys are interested, I know somebody who owns a giant collection of laser discs, ooh. Uh, mostly porn, by the way. Less ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but <clears throat> here's why I think this is an important story for integrators. Uh, two things. One, I believe this puts a um, renewed emphasis on integrators talking to their customers about media servers. So we're talking about Kaleidoscape and those sorts of media servers that now, there is absolutely no reason for an integrator not to introduce a media server when he's talking to a customer because they are not going to be able to. I, at some point, there's, you know, Sony and whomever is not even going to make Blu-ray players anymore. Blu-ray Blu disc mm -hmm. players are not going to be available. I think they only make one now. Um, secondly, this puts a, a greater emphasis on systems like Crestron to help customers find streaming media. The other night, I was trying to find the Bruins hockey game, not the UCLA Bruins, by the way, Dave Chase, the Boston Bruins hockey team. We were, 
on purpose? Yeah, on purpose. I was trying to find the recorder. <laughs> and it was on Hulu. And it, it was 10 minutes of trying to find this because it's so there's so many services, so many streaming services that I have. I couldn't find the service. Um, now, take that. That was a sports event, granted. But take that same situation to the movie, to somebody who watch it, wants to watch a movie, doesn't know what service it's on. Is it on Prime? Is it on Netflix? Is it on Hulu? Is it whatever it's on? And the integrator, there's going to be an emphasis in making sure that that control system helps the customer navigate finding the streaming media even more important. So, yes, this is, you know, death knell. We can ring the bell and et cetera. But for integrators, this, I think, is a big opportunity on the control side and the media server side. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, gentlemen, let's change topics for a second. This comes to us from uh, Residential Systems and a good friend of the show, Mr. Henry Clifford, managing sales teams with bumper lanes. Uh, it's a look at Livewire's latest sales compensation policy. Read through it. He he, he weaves a really nice tale of uh, young Henry as he was starting his company and the ways that they went around to ensure and incentivize high performance across their sales teams by putting in place, as the title alludes to, uh, a bunch of bumpers to hopefully um, direct his sales people into where they need to be when they're when they're designing and selling projects. Um, so it's a fantastic read. He focuses on uh, th three main points as far as uh, the quarterly run rate, margins, and discounts, uh, which is really interesting to see. Dave, when you look at this, when you read through this, how do you determine where your bumpers are? Because it's really easy to say, hey, we need some bumpers here to get our salespeople or our technicians or whoever uh, on our team down that lane properly. But how do you go about devising where you need those bumpers to live? For any business owner, particularly when you have people on staff who are paid on some degree of commission or you know something related to their production, it's always going to be um, a healthy challenge. I mean, I've spent countless hours poring over spreadsheets trying to find you know the right formulas um, you know for similar scenarios to this, uh, where you know, ultimately you know it, it starts first of all with the relationship between the employer and employee. Okay, that you want to have you know, the right culture, the right dynamic, and everyone should understand that. Look, when worked out properly, it should all be about a win-win situation. As the owner of the company, if you win, I win, right? And so we should each, you know, mm -hmm. kind of share in the uh, in, in the profits, so to speak. You know, naturally, and this tends to happen, the, the larger the company becomes where, you know, the people out in the field often can be more and more detached from, you know, management or the people who make the decisions. Naturally, people are going to look out for their own and say, listen, how can I work this system to, to best suit my particular scenario? How do I make the most money? And if they spot some kind of a loophole or some kind of a way to leverage the system, yeah, I got to figure a lot of them are going to do that. So it's a matter of a sitting down in, in just running your numbers. At least that's how I do it. The old school way, run your numbers and how it all kind of plays out with different scenarios. And then having a, having a conversation with your people going, listen, here's a plan. Here's how I came up with it. Here's how I see it being a win-win for both of us. Not where, you know, the company keeps all the money and you keep working harder and harder. Um, you know, it really should be, and that should be that the spirit behind it. It should be, look, these guys are going to make a living too, and they should win if you win. Um, and if everyone's on the same page, you know, then it's just a matter of the details. Yeah, that's a really good point. Jason, one of the things I loved in here is he's actually, <laughs> that's going to sound wrong, but he's actually penalizing 
if they don't meet those bumpers, if they fall outside of those bumpers uh, on the negative side, they're deducting in this case uh, from a sales side, uh, part of the commission for underselling the scope. How do you balance um, re incentivizing versus penalizing? Yeah, I was the one thing that was surprising there for me on the sales side was how if the one salesperson didn't hit their um, target, then they were going to revert them to 100% commission, which is very difficult. There's a lot, a lot of people who will take 100% commission sales jobs these days. So that's um, difficult. Let me let me point out something, though, that might there were several, I think, really key takeaways from this. And this is a, a must read for your read for your listeners. They absolutely should read this article. And a big kudos to Henry for sharing this because 10 years ago, integrators didn't share this kind of information. And the fact that he's sharing this out to the to the whole market is great. Um, and Livewire is a um, you know very successful company. So I look at these as some really good metrics for dealers to, to, to compare against. And a couple of things stood out for me. One is that he had and I was surprised by this, a 70% equipment uh, rep, uh, share and 30% labor. And I, we, we had just run num similar numbers for, for D-Tools in our mid-year report. And I actually thought, I couldn't believe that it came out exactly that. 70% of revenue coming from equipment and 30% mm -hmm. coming from labor. And I thought that the labor should be much higher. And I know, uh, Dave, you know, you deal with a lot of companies and I'm sure I'm, I'd be curious to hear what your feedback is because- but his was right on that, which still shows me this reliance that integrators have on expensive equipment and potentially devaluing their labor. Whereas, you know, electricians are flipped. If you look at electricians, they're 70 percent labor and 30 percent equipment. So there's a commoditization on the labor side there. The other thing I want to ask, and I'm curious, Matt, from your company and also Dave, I know you you mm -hmm. talk to a lot of companies and Michael, you do, too, was the the. Um, metric that he had in there that his commercial projects were 2.5% lower profitability target rate than residential. Um, and I don't know, because commercial jobs obviously tend to be bigger, but I thought that was an interesting target also that he was at an expectation of a lower 2.5% lower profit margin on his commercial work than his residential work. So I'm curious to hear your feedback. Well, Jason, I wanted to touch on just around the 30% labor, 70%. Um, product now our job and our focus as a manufacturer uh, is making the integrators jobs easier so you think about crash on home and that platform it removed the need for programming less programming for a lot of the integrators was like well that means less time on the job that means you know essentially less labor and therefore less revenue so what we're trying to do with our innovations is to make it much easier for them to go in and do these jobs, to win more jobs, to do more jobs and grow that way versus it always being program heavy, get back in programming and spend, you know, two weeks on site programming downstairs in the cupboard. So our, our major effort from our standpoint is to make that easier. But the 70% on the manufacturer side means that it's even more important for us to make sure that they can sell at a price point that drives enough revenue for them. So it's not a race from our side. It's not a race to the bottom with regards to price of product. We know that if we build quality products, 
then our integrators can stand behind them and sell them for a price that is in the right category. And if they can sell them for that price, they can make a lot of money from us. And if we can, you know, so for us, yes, we might be making it easier to go and configure the jobs, which is reducing the labor side of things. But I think we can drive up the, the profit share with quality products that you can charge more for. Um, so I think that's a really interesting element uh, with regards to that split, that number there. I saw that too and was like, okay, yeah, makes sense. It's surprising too, to Jason's point, that you know the, the equipment being the lowest margin of the three. And to take it a step further, when you have to negotiate the overall cost with a client, where does that, if the, if the price has to be reduced, where does it come from? How many integrators are reducing their labor costs? I'm thinking that's guaranteed profit. Are they taking the money out of the equipment? Are they taking it out of the labor? Where is that reduction in cost coming from? Are we simply just taking some products out and that makes it easy? Or am I negotiating the number of, you know, the, the price per hour or whatever? Um, yeah, I, Jason, I agree with you. I, I always thought the model was much more weighted towards, you know, towards labor, which is pretty much guaranteed profit. So that was, that was surprising. I know, you know, there's different ways you can handle the equipment side, um, but there's only so much profit you're ever going to get there. You know, and the really low margin stuff like video displays and so on, while they've gotten better, are still, you know, I know integrators are saying, listen, go buy a TV, I'll install it, but you go buy it somewhere because I'm not going to go try to compare price with everybody and give you the best deal and so on. Um, you know, it just seems like equipment, you know, cyclically, it's just, you know, almost always a race to zero unless you're going with the really, you know, high end stuff. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'd love it for every integrator to go out and sell a two hundred fifty thousand dollar projector and a hundred thousand dollar video wall in the home. Uh, that's awesome. That's that's great. And that sort of those sorts of things skew the number, the equipment percentage higher, which is great. Um, but I actually, like I said, I was surprised. I I thought that it would that it would have been at least thirty five percent labor at this point, but it isn't. And if you have to sell more gear, there's a lot of ways you can get your your, your guys to sell slightly more profitable gear too, but that's a whole other conversation. Well, and, and that's a good point though, because we find in our, so in our company on our commercial side, when we're doing the basic commercial work, our margins are more out of skew even than this, right? And our data, our, our gross profit would be, again, a couple points lower than this as well, because it's generic commercial. If we're doing more boutique or specialized commercial, whether we're building right now, we've been doing a lot of um, streaming systems. And uh, actually, we've been doing a lot of um, like media booth um, studios, right, like multipurpose content creation studios for uh, for some companies. There's not a lot of people in that field. And there's not a lot of um, super low cost products in that field. So we do very well in that on the commercial side, but our product to labor rate is again, very similar to what Henry's got. What has made that even more telling to me is a couple of years ago, we opened a, um, a millwork company that does fabrication. And on that side, it's almost all labor to your electrician example. We are so heavily skewed in skilled labor compared to product. And then our deliverables, or again, there's tons of labor and a couple of screws on site, and that's all you use. It, it, it's been very interesting to contrast the two companies um, that we now have where 
we're seeing the the guaranteed profit from labor obviously is significantly higher in our millwork company than it is in our AV company because it, it it's nothing to sell a uh, you know $100,000 AV project that has $70,000 in gear and 20 grand in labor because that's all it takes because the you know for the one of the broadcast things we were just doing it's nothing to spend 70 grand on cameras and in you know infrastructure and then it takes two days to install so yeah i'd love to boost labor on that but it's hard um so it's, it's a very interesting article all right let's hit this last one of the day uh and then everyone can get on with what they're doing this comes to us from residential tech today and uh, another good friend of the show mr jeremy glowacki d tools data shows change orders can be lucrative uh on those change orders um, they got a fancy fancy graph here that shows that they've earned uh 40 percent of those change orders earned positive revenue uh only eight percent lost money and 49 percent broke even um great little article and there's a link to the report so you can go download that and and take a look at that as well jason let me start with you on this one because uh, obviously you work at Detool, so hopefully you know something about this one. Um, my issue <laughs> with change orders is there can be a very negative stigma with constantly having change over orders occur. I get that there's a lot of, or there can be a lot of opportunity there, but how do you get to the opportunity while overcoming the stigma of change orders because having one is nothing having 10 is another story yeah i invite everybody to to read the full report because i get into the cultural element of change orders so is are you an integration company that purposely comes in with a price point that's lower and you are intentionally aiming to build the revenue from the project via change orders or are you an integration company that comes in with a fully baked, fully accurate um, proposal and you want to minimize the change orders? There's a cult, there's two different cultures out there. Yeah. I talk to integrators on both sides of that. And so we get into that in the report. So I invite everybody to, to look at that. The other thing is that I did talk to integrators who, especially on large projects, they will bulk the change orders together. So if it, right. it depends on, depends on the price point, if, if it's, it, you know, one guy I spoke with said, look, until it gets to a thousand dollars, I don't, if it's, if it takes seven change orders to get to a thousand dollars, that's when I create the change order for the product, for the customer. And I have all seven on there. I'm not going to do one at a time. And one of those might've been a $35 move of, of a, of a, of a keypad. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another thing I think where you, you don't, want to, the customer to think you're nickel and diming them with you know a change order for every single one of these but bulking them uh together like that so um it's definitely a cultural um uh, decision that i think integrators need to look at so i invite everybody to read the full report yeah that's a good point michael is there a best practice as far as because obviously there i've never been on a project that didn't have some form of scoped creep right something comes up some other factor comes into play. Usually it's not of our design. You just, something happens, right? You got to deal with it. 
is there a cultural way of dealing with this to minimize change orders from a you know mistake or or just generic scope creep situation yeah i mean i think that it's just understanding that you've got to have a little bit of flexibility in the way that you work through projects this is going to happen and i am sure there are change orders that happen that never even come to fruition as a change order and it's just something that's that's done i think that flexibility is really key and it kind of goes back to you know the conversation we're having a second ago around businesses and sales teams and managing business i think that within our channel it's really about how you manage your business and understanding that in these cases flexibility is is really really important but also i think if you understand that this is going to happen then keeping a track on the reasons why and i think as mm -hmm. as was pulled out through the article you know the root causes there are going to be reasons and as a business keeping track of what those root causes might be identifying them understanding them is going to help in the future you know to to stop this creep and stop these changes potentially happening but ultimately it's going to happen and having that mm -hmm. flexibility within a business and being able to do that I think is really important and culturally just to understand that that is that is going to be the case it is is a starting point for managing it in my view yeah that's a great point all right Dave I'm left the uh most entertaining question for you <laughs> when you're looking at change orders slash scope creep that 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 those situations and and Jason I'm so glad you identified that there are companies that will bid low and rely on change orders to get there. Um, at, around here, that is incredibly commonplace in the electrical industry, especially in the commercial electrical industry. They will do the bare minimum that the uh, um, RPO asks for, and then they will change order the heck out of that thing to make it profitable for them. Is there a industry methodology that we should, again, as an industry, adopt to not be as deceitful as, you know, looking at something on an RPO or on a design and go, that's not going to work, but we're going to quote it anyways, because we'll just change order in the future. That's such a challenging thing for, and again, for integrators. Um, I know like, it, looking from our perspective, like we're a media design firm. And I, there's no way I can go in there and lowball something, and hopefully I'm going to get a bunch of change orders. I mean, change orders for us, it's it's you know it's a constant part of our business, just like it is with integration firms. Um, the problem on our end is just in, in a way it's a, it's a similarity is that customers just don't know what they're getting themselves into. They don't know. It's like when you're having a house built, you don't know how many decisions are going to come up and how many things that constitute changes. And so the business has to figure out, okay, the, the tug of war between ethics and between, you know, required business and, and so on. I think to go in there and say, I'm basically, I'm going to bait and switch. I'm going to do this for what seems to be a really cheap price and bank on the fact that anytime you want to do anything, I'm going to whack you for it. Look, if they can get away with it, that's their thing. I think it's pretty unethical and would probably the reputation would get around pretty quick if that's what they're doing. Like, oh, I hired these guys. And the project was supposed to be this and it came out being, you know, 50% or 70% higher. Um, they do that a few times. Their reputation is not going to look too good. 
Um, I think when you go into quota project, and again, I'm not an integrator, but you have to factor in the fact there's probably going to be some give and take no matter what on any project. And then as best you can, manage expectations of the client saying, look, you know, here's the types of things that can happen. And the better you manage your expectations up front, I would think it's not going to avoid the problems down the road, but I think it's going to, it's going to temper them significantly and help you, you know, address them more effectively. You were talking about best practice. Let me pick up on, on what Michael said. If you notice from the report, 49% of change orders were revenue neutral. And I think that's a best practice. I think we could assume that most of those are internal change orders that the integrators, where there's no, there's no money changing hands with the customer, but they're doing the change order so they can learn. So that I think is a best practice that could, if you want to look for a best practice from this report, I think that that's a good one uh, for integrators to be thinking about. Do a change order so you can learn and know, hey, oh, I didn't put that wiring uh, uh, diagram in, or I didn't have that, that um, you know, I put in something, but I forgot to put in the, the proper size rack. It's my fault as the integrator. Let me do a change order so we can learn from that for going forth. So that's my two cents on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And hopefully that's what it is, right? All right, gentlemen, let's leave it there. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Michael, if people want to connect with you, learn more about Crestron, where can they do that? Just head over to Crestron.com. Well, that was easy. Uh, Dave, if people want to connect with you, learn more about Cogent uh, 360, where can they find that info? Yeah, it's Cogent 360, no spaces, Cogent360.com. Uh, if you want to talk to me, it's email is dchase, D-C-H-A-C-E, uh, at cogent360.com. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Mr. Knott, if people want to connect with you, learn more about D-Tools, uh, where can they do that? Um, please go to dtools.com. That's d-tools.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason W. Knott, um, and my email is uh, jasonk at dtools.com. I, I've got to, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn also. Just everyone gets my last name wrong. It's Chase with a C, C H A C E. So uh, <laughs> if you want to find me on LinkedIn, I'm there as well. Perfect. All right. Thank you again uh, for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at Matt D. Scott on Twitter and most other social platforms. But more importantly, please visit aviation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Hello, this is Steve Greenblatt, host of Aviation's State of Control podcast. Each month, Rich Fergosa and I explore trending topics, foundational subject matter related to control programming and automation in the audiovisual industry. We speak with a variety of AV professionals who share their perspective, knowledge, and experiences. Please join us for this monthly conversation. Check out A State of Control on aviation.tv or wherever you get your podcasts.